Welcome to this third season of Reset the Table. I'm Caitlin Welsh, director of the CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program. This summer's consecutive climate shocks and Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative jeopardize food security and nutrition worldwide. And the role of food systems in achieving global climate goals is increasingly clear as we head into COP28 this fall. We'll examine solutions to food insecurity around the world and right here at home during this limited run of Reset the Table. The CSIS Global Food and Water Security Program will be back in 2024 to tell a new story about food and water. Join us, and now to today's show. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Alvaro Lario, president of the UN International Fund for Agricultural Development, or EFAD. EFAD was founded in 1977 and is the world's second largest multilateral investor in food and agriculture. Dr. Lario brings to this role two decades of leadership in international development finance, including at the World Bank, in the private sector, and most recently as Associate Vice President of Operations at EFAD. Dr. Lario assumed the presidency of EFAD in October 2022, and we had the privilege to host him at CSIS shortly thereafter, last October, and again in July 2023. Alvaro, welcome back to CSIS, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Caitlin. My pleasure. So I'd like to start where we left off July 2023, when you were last at CSIS. When we saw you then, you had just participated in the summit for a new global financing pact in Paris in June. A few months later, you participated in the G20 summit in New Delhi in September. You had numerous meetings around UNGA, High Level Week in New York, the World Bank and IMF fall meetings just wrapped up, and you are in the midst of CFS meetings, the Committee on uh, World Food Security meetings in Rome right now. From EFAD's perspective, and this is a, a lot of global gatherings we're talking about, what have been the most important outcomes of these meetings? Well, thank you very much for having me. As you said, uh, we have been participating in these high-level meetings as a, well, as a United Nations agency and also as an international financial institution at a time where we are seeing that the figures on hunger and food insecurity are quite alarming. So for us, it has been a good opportunity to present the case of increased investments in a year of replenishment for IFAD when we are calling for a $2 billion investment in new financing, which will get us to a program of work of around $10 billion and which will impact, more importantly, more than 110 million smallholders and which will raise the income of 110 million. The declarations we've seen from the G20 leaders in New Delhi or also recently at the IMF Marrakesh meetings have very much encouraged member states to, to replenish IFAD. Unfortunately enough, in, during UNGA, and during a global citizen event, we had the president from France, Macron, championing the, the IFAD campaign and committing an increase of almost 60%, just as also the Norwegian foreign minister also increasing his contribution by 50%. And for us, this is very good news because we believe that at this moment in time, when we are seeing that there's more and more extreme weather events, but also increasing numbers on food security, which are really threatening the existence of millions of rural people, it's the time actually to invest in this type of development that actually focuses on the productive side. We are not talking about subsistence farming, but actually about accessing to markets, building resilience and 
making sure that people living in these areas are not forced to migrate or just forced to really join uh, well, terrorist activities or, or activities that are really threatening the, their lives. So in this sense, we're very happy with the support we've been getting from the international community. And we are calling now for a final replenishment session, which will happen in Paris under the leadership of President Macron, as well as President Lorenzo from Angola. And we will hope to see all of our member states there. Thank you. I will turn to the replenishment meeting in Paris in December and also to COP28, which will have happened right before then. We'll return to that. But first, I want to take a few minutes to talk about EFAD's innovative financing model, which is something that we hear discussed widely in international development finance circles. But EFAD really excels in this. EFAD began to issue bonds in 2022 under your leadership as associate vice president then of financial operations. It was the first time it had ever been done by a UN-funded specialized agency other than the World Bank. When you were in Paris a couple of months ago, you said that, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said we must find a way to catalyze private sector investment on a massive scale because public funding alone cannot provide the financing needed to eradicate hunger by 2030. So you're acknowledging that official development assistance is not enough. So I want to talk a bit about the mechanics of how you issue bonds and what you use them for. Again, issued your first sustainable development bond in June of 2022 worth $100 million. At that point, got a double A plus rating from Fitch. In June of this year, June of 2023, 12 months later, you issued uh, your largest sustainable financing bond ever worth 115 million euro. Just last September, just two months ago, another double A plus rating from Fitch. So again, let's talk about the mechanics of this. Who purchases the bonds? What's the rate of return on investment? And with the revenue that EFAD gets, what do you do? Well, that's a great question. As you said, we were the first United Nations agency that uh, actually managed to get the credit ratings. For us, uh, this has meant uh, changing our articles of agreement several times, and now we are doing also so to get also the ability of co-financing with the private sector. So we are offering also our member states the possibility of bringing the private sector investments into our balance sheet. So we will be able also to issue bonds and be able to own lend to the private sector from our own capital base, which is something that multilateral development bank, usually some of them like the IFC or EBRD do, but it's not that common for a UN agency. So for us, this means also using our credit rating to do so. We're also thinking on another type of instrument, which is also on partial credit guarantees, which will enable also the amount of financing going to through rural financial institutions and very much rural local financial institutions to be able to mobilize further financing for the rural SMEs, which usually, as everybody knows, are lacking very much that financing access. And which, if we think about it, usually most of the job creation is done by these small SMEs, just like in the developed world, whereby companies from 5 to 50 workers are the ones who actually are creating most of the jobs. So it's important that we also support the development of the private sector at the local level and at the rural level. So this is our, our two next endeavors. Both continue issuing bonds. The next one, develop partial credit guarantees and also try to make sure that we are mobilizing more private sector money with our own co-financing to the uh, small and micro enterprises. As you mentioned, the bond issuances really have been something um, very 
important for us. And we use them for a number of different matters, restoring and maintaining natural resources, improving agriculture production and limiting post-harvest losses, improving access to markets, promoting sustainable rural transformation with uh, rural institutions, strengthening rural finance. So there's a, a number of, I would say, SDGs that we are supporting. Indeed, in our framework, we are also presenting that actually our projects are contributing to 16 out of the 17 SDGs. Although our main, I would say, impact and our main focus is in SDG 1 and SDG 2. And very much SDG 2.3, which is increasing the income of smallholders, which is one of the, I would say, variables that we very much focus on when we are trying to show the impact of our project through our own impact assessments. In terms of the bonds and the returns, well, they're just regular bonds. So in this case, we do them through private placement, usually with pension funds, with impact investors, and they provide the same return as you would get for a AA plus. So it's a very credit worthy type of bond. And in this sense, the returns are in line with what you would get as such. Indeed, this November, I will be in at the London Stock Exchange also listing some of our bonds. Up to now, all our bonds have been listed in the Luxembourg Stock Exchange, and now they will also be listed at the London Stock Exchange. So we will continue with this model, as I said, of issuing bonds, co-investing with the private sector, and trying to use our balance sheet through guarantees to mobilize more money that goes very much to the targeted and vulnerable populations that we are focusing on. Okay. Do you have a timeline in mind for the partial credit guarantee issuances? Well, in this case, we are developing them right now. So we will be presenting them to our board, the first plan next year, but we have just started. Okay, great. Again, the funding that you receive through these bond issuances, it goes directly to the projects that you are investing in in rural areas in many countries around the world. Is that the case? That is correct. Yes. I mean, they go to projects from upper middle income to middle income to low middle income. So yeah, they they range in in the variety of of how we use this uh, issuance of bonds and are leveraged to attend really a wide number of countries. That's correct. Thank you. And you mentioned that in order to issue bonds, in order to begin this process, you needed to adjust EFAD's articles of incorporation, I believe. So it doesn't seem like it was an easy process, but it seems like it was very much worth it. Is this something that you think is possible or even recommend for other organizations that are promoting development, particularly with regard to agriculture and food security? Well, I believe in our case, given that we are a financial institution, to a certain extent, it was just natural. It took us a number of months or years to make the credit rating agencies understand our business model. We were lucky that either had gone through an issuance uh, um, one or two years before. However, yeah, I would say that we are paving the way for many others to try. So I know some climate institutions have thought about it, given also their business model. It's certainly not easy internally, but that's why we are leading these institutions to make sure that we unturn any potential stone that is out there. That's so in order to mobilize as much financing as we can. Now for us, that means also co-investing with the private sector. But yeah, it took us a lot of, I would say, understanding. But our board also saw that there was a need to be creative, to be innovative. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, official development assistance, if we think about it, it's just a tiny drop in terms of the overall financing. It's around 200 billion per year in agriculture, 5%, so 10 billion. So if you compare that just to, in the case of food, to the food subsidies, when we're talking about six, 700 to 800 billion, if you talk just about foreign direct inflows, which might be 600 billion, if you talk about remittances, around 700 billion. So we need to make sure that we make the most and we catalyze other investments and very much also the local private sector, multinationals too, 
global value chains, but we need to support also the local entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. And and as I mentioned, this process was started by you while you served as Associate Vice President of Financial Operations at IFAN. Just for awareness, when did you start working on this process of issuing bonds? And again, we know that you issued your first one in June 2022. So actually, we got the credit rating, if I remember correctly, at the beginning of 2020. And I started in 2018. So it was, I would say, very two intense years to make sure that the institution was sustainable, that we had all the mechanisms in place, the risk systems, the necessary infrastructure. So yeah, it took a very long two years. Yes. <laughs> well, kudos on your success with that. And we'll be following this closely and and would love to follow up with you and further conversations about uh, what you're able to do with this financing that you're leveraging. But I want to turn right now to talk about events coming up about COP28 and then about EFED replenishment. But with COP28, we know that agriculture and food security are likely to be major themes of the UAE's presidency this year. As it seems to be a lot of momentum behind agriculture and food security investments from the events that we talked about this summer and this fall. Do you anticipate that momentum carrying forward into COP28? And also, what do you hope for in terms of main outcomes of, of this year's COP? We are quite happy to see that uh, still food systems and food continues to be at the top of the agenda. So the United Arab Emirates have put an emphasis also on linking food and climate, which to us is fundamental, a big danger and a big challenge for many of the small scale farmers we're seeing throughout the world is the floods, the droughts, the heat waves, the cyclones. So it's important that we continue paying attention. In terms of the general, I would say, adoption of Green Development Pact and what's uh, entailed with it, we are still hopeful. We believe that it's a big challenge. It's true that if you just think to put things in perspective, the developing world will need around almost $6 trillion until 2030 for nationally determined contributions. That's a huge amount. And an additional $4 trillion, so we're talking about $10 trillion in total, just for clean energy technologies to meet the zero emission goals. So this is clearly a big commitment. From our side, we very much focus on the climate adaptation angle because this is what we believe that small-scale farmers need at this moment in time and right now, not in the future. And 90% of our climate finance actually focuses on small-scale farmers and on adaptation. So for us, this means uh, focusing on the people who are the ones who are currently suffering. Vis-a-vis the the COP itself, we uh, will be uh, presenting a number of projects, for example, one very interesting on private sector climate adaptation in the Sahel. So both combined, which seems already a challenge, both separately, especially in in, in very fragile and conflict-affected areas. And this is important because we need to provide solutions and create jobs, especially for the youth. And the only way that we see it's obviously trying to tackle the issue of climate change, but also bring in the private sector. We will also be announcing a different number of other initiatives. And this is a good time to really showcase many of the projects we are trying to innovate with and also mobilize financing. Last year, we were part in the COP27. We were the lead agency on food, on the Egyptian nexus of food, water, and energy. And we mobilized two and a half billion of projects just on the food track. So I think this type of events are important to announce projects to make sure that we bring our partners together and to talk about financing. This is the key for us. Certainly. Well, and your most important meetings on financing will take place in December of the year, this year around EFAD 13 replenishment. There's been a lot of momentum behind this already. G20 leaders in September endorsed, quote, an ambitious replenishment of EFAD resources at the end of 2023, at the end of the year. 
in support of EFAD's fight against food insecurity. Just a couple of weeks ago in October of 2023, G7 finance ministers and central bank governors made a similar expression of support for EFAD replenishment. So far, we've seen France, Norway, and Spain make landmark financial contributions to replenishment. And it's not just those countries. We also see smaller, low and middle income countries making contributions as well. Cambodia, Cote d'Ivoire, DRC, Niger, South Sudan, and others. So what are you hoping to achieve in the EFAD 13 replenishment cycle? As you mentioned, a very important part is that EFAD is, a, I would say, a very inclusive as well as institution that has that is supported by all countries in all income categories. So we are seeing, for example, Djibouti uh, increasing their pledge by 10 times. It's obviously a small pledge, but that shows that they really value what EFAD is bringing. And this is one of the messages. We'll make an effort to bring whatever it is, half a million, two million, five million, to make sure that we are contributing to EFAD because we see the impact and we see the value. This is something that uh, we are very proud of and that uh, we would like to continue. Obviously, most of the financing comes from OCDE, G7, G20, but even then, there's a good number of borrowing countries that still also continue contributing to EFAD. For us, IFAS 13, I would say it's a, it's a key moment because it's we're in the middle of a food crisis. So if it's not now the time to focus in small-scale farmers, then when is it the time? So it's really, for us, I would say a validation of the mission and of the importance of, of building resilience. I mentioned at the beginning that we we're looking for a 2 billion new replenishment financing that will help us with our partners to come to a 10 billion program of work, which will change the lives and increase the income of more than 100 million small-scale farmers. So we continue working towards uh, doubling our impact by 2030. That's our work. That's what we are all uh, working for. And this will mean that every year we will be impacting the lives of 40 million people. And I think that's uh, something that we very much continue working on. For IFA 13, the three key thematic priorities, if there's uh, that we want to double down or the ones that we see as the biggest challenges. The first one is our focus on fragility. We're seeing more and more countries falling into fragility, affected by different drivers of fragility. So we really need to operate and intervene in a much more, not only agile, but perhaps in a different way. And this is what we are currently exploring. What can we do better? The second one is right now, like in many other institutions, we mainstream climate. We have a lot of climate uh, additional financing, but many times it comes as supplementary funds or it comes on the side. We want to make sure that climate resilience and climate adaptation is at the center. So we're working on how to integrate it from the beginning in the design and the planning rather than that something that is ad hoc. And finally, as I mentioned, also the engagement with the private sector. Now in all of our designs, in our country strategies, we would like to see what could be potential entry points for the private sector. We have a lot of projects that actually work on public-private partnerships, but we also need to make sure that we are open operationalizing them in a way that they are also mobilizing and attracting private sector. For us, this is not new. However, that we co-invest with it is relatively new. So, so we need to continue evolving. We need to make sure that with the tools we have, we, we have the highest impact we have on the most vulnerable communities in some of the most fragile countries in the world. Thank you. And we wish you best of luck with the EFAB 13 replenishment in December. For a final question for you, again, we had the honor to host you at CSIS in October 2022, just a few days after you assumed the presidency of EFAD. You've had significant accomplishments in your first year as president. One year from now, in October 2024, 
What do you hope to have accomplished in your second year of presidency of IFAD beyond a successful replenishment cycle, of course? So the first year, given it was a replenishment year, there had been a lot of uncertainty on the transition. I think the first thing was to bring some stability internally to the institution and second, to raise the visibility of IFAD. I think in a, in a food crisis, having many of the heads of state I visit telling me about how impactful it is, how relevant we are for many of the people with whom we work, it was very important to break this at the big fora, where it's the Global New Financial Pact, the G7, the G20, now at COP, that the name of not only of EVOD, but the importance of investing in small-scale farmers, investing in building resilience alongside humanitarian assistance needs to be stressed out because otherwise we are not addressing the root causes of fragility, the root causes of hunger, of inequality. So that was a message I wanted to make sure that I really put forward. And that's why I have been traveling and making a lot of effort to do so. For my second year, it's important that we continue evolving as an institution. I think we need to be more agile. We need to make sure that we deliver in contexts that are becoming more challenging. So it will also be looking into how can we improve our processes to make sure that we are delivering the most with what we have. And this is something that is going to be a big focus. Also, with making sure that we, as I said, embed a private sector mentality, a we change the culture and we put it alongside in terms of importance also of our public sector loans. This requires changing, obviously, our culture, our organization. But I think, as I said, it's very, very important that we all continue evolving. The world is changing very quickly and there's a lot of people who need our support and our investment. So we need to make sure that we deliver. In your first year as president, did you have the opportunity to visit your projects in any country? Well, indeed, that's the best part of being a, a president. I did. So I've been in many countries. I've been in Cote d'Ivoire, in Madagascar, in Colombia, in um, Kenya, in Indonesia, well, in Saudi Arabia, in Brazil. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the best part probably of being, uh, of, of having the ability of seeing the impact on the ground. And I have been lucky also and that some ministers have also from some of the donor countries are willing to come with us also and visit some of the impact. So I will continue traveling because I think it's very important that we make visible the impact of the projects. I think once people understand how these investments transform the lives of millions of people who don't have these opportunities, that's when I think uh, our case is clearer. So seeing it on the ground is the best way. Yeah, thank you. Well, kudos on accomplishments during your first year. Best of luck with the replenishment cycle. And we hope to speak with you again soon, perhaps in October of next year, so we can reflect on accomplishments in your second year as president. So best of luck. And Dr. Alvaro Lario, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation and looking forward to seeing you all in person. Take care. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.